Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. I'm your host, Jake McAtee. And this week, I had the opportunity to talk with author E. Michael Jones from Culture Wars magazine about my favorite book of his, Monsters from the Id. It's all about the connection between the horror genre and sex, which means this episode does come with a content warning. If you enjoy our discussion, don't forget he was a guest on Man Rampant Season 2, so you can watch his conversation with Douglas Wilson exclusively on the Canon app. Without further ado, meet E. Michael Jones. All right, now welcoming on special guest E. Michael Jones from CultureWars.com and an author of many books that I've benefited greatly from. Dr. Jones, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Awesome. So one of the books that I mentioned that I've I've benefited a lot from and really the first book I ever read of yours still to this day remains my favorite is Monsters from the Id, The Rise of Horror in Fiction and Film. It's a fascinating thesis and it's also the way that you accomplish the thesis sort of the all the plates in the air like history literary criticism film criticism social commentary all of that put together to to accomplish the book it's really good could you introduce us to that thesis and, and maybe the circumstances that provoked you to write the book yes circumstances were largely technological okay i had just finished a, a biography of uh, cardinal kroll of philadelphia which was all archival material and, uh, you know, hard work, had to organize this material. And uh, I was looking for something else to do. And I realized that at this point in history, I'm talking about the mid-90s, you could do film research in a way that had not been possible before that. To do film research, you had to go to UCLA or something like that, where they had old actual film that you could actually watch on actual cameras and projectors and so on and so forth. Now, anybody could do film research. And so I started going to these video stores. This is the era of the DVD. (laughs) The what now? What's that I'm sorry. No, no. Wait a minute. It was the- VHS tapes. VHS. I'm sorry. That's what it was. I got my alphabet wrong. (laughs) So anyway, um, I started, you know, just thinking, I could watch all of these movies. This is incredible. And I started, I ended up watching horror movies for some reason or other. Actually, I started watching Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. And then I get into horror movies, and then I began to wonder, is there some type of uh, pattern that's, that's emerging here? Because at this point, the whole horror movie genre had reached a state of decadence, by which I mean that they, they had become self-referential and they were becoming parodies of themselves. The guy, Wes Craven, did the Scream series. That was the parody of the horror movie. So it becomes so cliched that all you had were parodies. But to get back, uh, I started seeing patterns emerging here. And the pattern was that horror was always associated with a revolution. And so the book ended up being about Frankenstein, which was the sequel to the French Revolution, and then Dracula, which was the sequel in Germany to the sexual revolution and Bolshevik revolution of the 1919, and uh, Alien, which was the reaction to the sexual revolution in the United States of America. So there are the three monsters. Every time you create a revolution, you overturn the moral and social order. As soon as you overturn the moral and social order, people start acting on their passions. 
as soon as they start acting on their passions, their lives get out of control. And at that point, someone ends up dying. And that's pretty much the trajectory that I just tried to describe in Monsters from the Id. So you frame the book with those three revolutions and, and sort of the, it seems like the engine of those three re- revolutions are electricity, blood, and contraception. Could you talk about the first revolution? What, what, what kind of kicked us off here? Well, I'm talking about the French Revolution, but not so much the French Revolution as the English reaction or implementation of the French Revolution. Uh, The main proponent of the French Revolution in England was William Godwin, who ended up getting married to the first feminist in England, Mary Wollstonecraft. And uh, she uh, got a commission to go over to write about the French Revolution. Now, these people were all starry-eyed revolutionaries, uh, like William Wordsworth, who went over there and uh, ended up uh, fathering a child, was caught up in the whole sexual atmosphere. Uh, But he he became a conservative. God would never back down on his revolutionary principles. Interesting. Yeah, they have a child, Mary Godwin. And Mary Godwin is 16 years old, and suddenly an aristocrat by the name of Percy Shelley, who's an ardent follower of Godwin, shows up at their door. And uh, Shelley wants to start the French Revolution in England. And Godwin tries to talk to him, and uh, Shelley's talking about the Illuminati, and Godwin's appalled. And uh, During the course of the conversation, Shelley notices Godwin's daughter, and uh, within a matter of uh, days, falls in love with her and uh, decides to uh, explain to Godwin what's happening. Now, this Shelley is, I think, close to, she, I think he's 18 at the time. She's 16. What's wrong with that? Well, the uh, problem is Shelley's already married. His wife, Harriet, <laughs> is left behind with their child. And uh, Shelley uh, doesn't feel bad about this because he read Godwin, and Godwin said, marriage is the most odious of all monopolies. Well, that sounds great. What you're talking about in generalities, but wait a minute, this is my daughter now that you're talking about. And uh, I'm not so sure I believe this applies to my daughter. So again, once, once again, with the great left-wing philosophers, everything is great as long as it's in generalities, but when your daughter's involved, suddenly you have a, a hesitation about implementing this thing. Well, Shelley had no hesitation, so he went off to Switzerland uh, with the great uh, literary picnic uh, fam- most famous literary outing in English literature, where he linked up with Byron and uh, Mary's half sister Fanny Imlay, and they had their orgy of sex, uh, uh, free love, and uh, we're having a great time. The only problem was that a volcano had blown up in Indonesia the year before and spewed millions of tons of dust into the air. So we had they had no summer uh, that year, right? And as a result, they couldn't go rowing on Lake, uh, on Lake Geneva, and they couldn't go hiking. And so they stayed in and they decided to write stories. And the story that they started to write, they started to write horror stories. Gothic fiction was the horror genre of that time. And um, Shelley had read, uh, read this story about Galvani's experiments, where uh, Galvani was the Italian scientist who would uh, hook frogs' legs up to a battery, and the legs would twitch, even though they were disconnected from the frog. And so being great scientists, Shelley and Byron concluded that they had discovered the principle of life, the elan vital, and all you had to do was 
dig up a body, uh, sew the parts together, run electricity through it, and you could create human life. This is obviously the story of uh, Frankenstein. Now, real quick, you're telling this to a lot of people. I feel like it's now told in a very campy way where this uh, outing at this house, you know, it's often told, you know, they would tell each other scary stories and that was fun and it's cute. And, and you leave plenty of anecdotes in the book about like how actually like really creepy and you've already mentioned the sexual stuff that was already happening. But one, one particular anecdote I remember from your book was I think from Shelley's diary, maybe where he said that after one of these nights of telling scary stories, was it Fanny that ran into his room and was utterly terrified? And he thought about comforting her, but he thought, but he was actually sexually turned on the more she was freaked out. So he didn't comfort her. Yeah. 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 That's actually Ken Russell did a movie on this wow. called Gothic. Okay. I don't particularly like the movies of Ken Russell. I don't like them at all, as a matter of fact, but you can watch it and get his take on what was going on there, which is basically a lot of screaming and running around. I mean, people, they were going crazy. The fact that they didn't go crazy completely uh, is a tribute to their upbringing. Uh, and uh, I've, I've become interested in this period again because I'm writing a book on aesthetics. And the third volume of the book is going to be on poetry in England. This was one of the times of the great achievement of poetry in England. England has, if there's one th art form they're famous for, it's poetry. And uh, this was one of the great outbursts of poetic expression. And these were two of the, the greatest poets. And uh, Shelley is a great poet. He's a jerk, but he was a great poet. And uh, poetry is a little bit like music. It's the music of words. And you can be a genius at music with, just by being born. There are people who just know, do, know music kind of intuitively. They understand it. And you can slog along as I did in a band in Germany, and then later with Irish music, just trying to catch up with these people who have just a natural talent that can run rings around you. So the poetry was, this, this, this was a great uh, poetic uh, moment, uh, sort of wrecked by the dissolute lives and the bad ideology of the, the people who, who, who ran it. Shelley being the prime example. Shelley was a revolutionary. I studied, this is back to my roots. I studied, I was a graduate student for literature both English and American literature, and Shelley was completely impenetrable, largely because of Mary Godwin Shelley, who was consumed with guilt for the rest of her life and turned Shelley into some type of angel. Okay, let me, let me get back to that story. Why is Mary consumed with guilt? Well, after their, their big uh, outing in Switzerland, she comes back, and it turns out that Harriet has committed suicide, Shelley's first wife. And Mary feels guilty. Now, why do you feel guilty? Don't you know that marriage is the most odious of all monopolies? That's what your father said. Aren't you a good daughter, obedient daughter of your father? Well, there's a part of human beings that simply you cannot ignore. They cannot ignore. And that's called the conscience. And the conscience is affected by uh, circumstance, by upbringing and all these other things, by environment. But it's independent of them as well. And even the most corrupt people are sometimes uh, are, suffer pangs of conscience. And she did that. <clears throat> so she's caught in a bind here. Normally, when you have, feel guilt, you have the choice. You can repent. And Catholics can go to confession and have their sins forgiven by the priest. And that is psychologically comforting, among other things. 
But this is a lady who not only could was not Catholic and did not or would not go to confession. She couldn't say what she did was wrong. This is a conflict. I, I feel bad, but I know there's nothing wrong with what I did. Well, they're two contradictory impulses. And so if you're going to talk about the psychological par- parallelogram of forces, the line, the vector that resolves those two contradictory forces is horror and the monster in particular. So she creates the monster. Dr. Frankenstein is Shelley. And the monster says to Shelley, thou didst sport with life, which is Mary talking to Shelley about all the children that he brought into this world and never took care of. That's what's going on here. That's, that's the heart of the matter. So the monster is a way of dealing with a problem that you can't admit is a problem. That's why there's always this ambiguity about it. And that's why, in many ways, it's so popular and so satisfying, because it avoids the obvious alternatives. On the one hand, guilt uh, leading to repentance and confession. On the other hand, guilt leading to even more monstrous behavior, as manifested by the Marquis de Sade, who said, whenever I feel guilty, I commit an outrage that's twice as bad as the last outrage, and then my guilt goes away. So that can only go on so far, and he knew it, and you end up murdering someone uh, with that regard. By the way, if you look at the uh, Ken Russell version of this uh, outing, they're reading the Marquis de Sade. And I think that that is clearly the case, that they did read the Marquis de Sade, because it was an underground bestseller. I know that Byron certainly had had a copy of, I think it's uh, the first one, Justine. I believe that's what he had. I think you talk about Justine in the book. Do you mind just giving us a brief intro to, to Marquis de Sade? What, what is the significance? Marquis de Sade was a completely decadent French aristocrat who was a monster and was imprisoned for his own good and the welfare of the uh, rest of the population of France. He was imprisoned in the Bastille at a time when there was large revolutionary ferment and he had uh, started uh, haranguing the crowd and that led to the French Revolution. So he was the man who led to the French Revolution. While in the Bastille, he wrote pornography, and the most famous book was Justine, uh, which was an underground bestseller for the, for the rest of the 20th century. Wow. wow. I'm sorry, the 19th century. I meant to say 19th century. So in a little bit that I've poked around just Frankenstein studies, and, and I found one of the reasons your thesis was so refreshing was just seeing how muddled and confused a ton of other Frankenstein takes are. And one thing I thought your thesis through, you know, through a big wrench in is there's a lot of folks that think Percy wrote uh, Frankenstein, which by your thesis, it wasn't in him to write that kind of thing. Or, you know, he, he wouldn't have critiqued, he wouldn't have run this critique on like Mary did. No, he never looked back. Right. Uh, and so he ended up uh, dying, uh, uh, as a, dying young as a revolutionary. He got he loved speed. I don't. I, I mean, actual velocity, not the <laughs> chemical. And uh, he would maybe he would if he if he could have tried. He would have been a race car driver or a pilot or something like that. But the fastest thing around them were ships. And so he there was he was in Italy in the Gulf of Spezia. A storm was coming in. He got out on his uh, yacht, put all the sails in, and just blew away and never came back again. His body washed up on shore. Few days later, and then he had a funeral for him, and so on and so forth. So he died doing what he loved, I guess, like Nelson <laughs> Rockefeller. <laughs> now, 
you've written about this person that I'm, I, I want to read a quote to you and get your reaction. You've written about this person elsewhere, and I want to come to that later. But staying in Frankenstein briefly, recently, Guillermo del Toro wrote an introduction to Frankenstein. I don't know if you've seen it, but he said it provided his road to Damascus moment. He says, it illuminated the reason I loved monsters, my kinship with them, and showed me how deep, how life-changing a monster parable could be, how it could function as art, and how it could reach across distance and time and become a palliative to solitude and pain. We try and return to help her creature stay alive. We strive to turn a curse into a blessing. We hope that in some way, somehow, our gratitude, our love can reach him like a whispered prayer, like a distant song. I, it continues that way, but I, oh, I want God bless him. God bless him. <laughs> if there ever is a, a guy who has squandered a gift, it's Guillermo del Toro. I don't know where, how familiar you are with his movies. First of all, I'd like to say that the, I, I talked about Wes Craven and how the monster genre just went down the drain in the 90s. The only exception to that rule is Guillermo del Toro. He has done absolutely brilliant movies. Hellboy is brilliant. And that thing about uh, the bugs in uh, the subway system of New York yes, City. The one that ended which, with the rosary. Yeah. What? I forget the name of that movie. But okay. uh, you're, you're right. You got, you got to the heart of the matter. This is this Mexican boy who's raised by his grandmother, I think, to be a pious Catholic. And there are rosaries. He's got, this is the, he's got more rosary in, in his movie than, than, than Lourdes and Fatima combined. Uh, so uh, in Hellboy, uh, they have this weird, great beginning of this movie, just really exciting beginning where the Nazi scientists are having this occult experiment and the GIs invade it. And there's a priest there. And the priest goes to the GI and says, you may need this. And he hands him a rosary bead. It's mimic, the by the way. Mimic. Mimic. Yeah. Okay. Just pushes him aside. Okay. Well, the mimic, another example of this, you got the bugs taken over and uh, Mira, is it Mira Sorvino? Uh, she's trying to save. There's a kid, innocent kid, on the railroad track. The bug is coming toward her. Now the bugs are attracted to blood. So what she does is she takes out a rosary bead, takes the crucifix, and jabs it into the palm of her hand. And it starts to bleed. And at this point, she distracts the bug from the the child, and he starts going after her. And then the train comes along and kills the bug. Great, mo great moment in uh, in film. And a real uh, development of the whole horror concept by making it explicit, by taking it back to its roots in the moral order and, and in Christ's uh, proclamation of the moral order. So th th these were great movies. I think th this guy really has something going on. I felt that way until I watched The Shape of Water, <laughs> which was one of the most disappointing movies I ever had because what, he, what you just wrote, uh, read about him and the monster. Uh, he's going over to the dark side. Right. Okay. The, the Shape of Water is a remake of the creature from the Black Lagoon, except that the monster's the hero. Now, right. wait a minute. The, the monster cannot be the hero. Okay. That's impossible. But it's exactly what happened in our age of inversion, of revolutionary inversion. So one of the early examples was a guy, I forget his name now, but he, he made Grendel the hero of oh, uh, yes. Beowulf. Right. I, f I forget this guy's name. It was a novel that came out in the 70s, I believe. Well, this is the same type of thing. Now the monster, which was the creature from the Black Lagoon, is now the hero of the movie. What does that mean? That means we have all become monsters. We have become monsters. 
And the best thing to you, you can do when you become a monster is have sex with a monster, which is exactly what this woman does. So it's all, it's like a parable of del Toro's capitulation to woke culture. Right. That's the way I see uh, uh, the shape of water. Right. Right. And you wrote about that and that's, that's available also. What was, an, you, what was the title of that book? It was a brief, wasn't it an essay that you wrote on the shape yeah, of water? It's a, it's a, it's a, it was a review in Culture Wars magazine. So if you go to culturewars.com and type in either del Toro or shape of water, you'll find it. Awesome. You'll find it. With that. And, and to be honest with you, I have to admit, I don't remember the title that I gave to it. <laughs> this is what happens when you've done a magazine for 40 years. You've written a lot, so it's, it's, by, it's more than excusable. So moving on from there, the, you, you go into the, the Russian Revolution uh, and, and, you sort, and you tie it to, it, it, correct me if I'm wrong, you tie it to Dracula as well. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Dracula? Why, when we hear Dracula, should we maybe think syphilis? <laughs> because that's what it's about. <laughs> yeah. Am I, the, I think I'm the first guy who said that. I really, I, I hate to blow my own horn, but I think I am the first guy who said that it was about syphilis. I've never seen anything else like it, so I, you may have that. Once, once you say it, it's out in the world. and everybody, Oh, yeah, I knew that all along. I think I was the first guy that said it. <laughs> but we're, we're, in, we're in the same realm here where uh, it's, it's so bad, I can't talk about it. But it's so bad, I can't not talk about it either. <laughs> and that's exactly what's, what uh, Jonathan Harker's situation is in uh, the beginning of Dracula. This is where well, I'm talking about the novel by Bram Stoker. Bram Stoker got syphilis. Sorry, but he did. He got syphilis. And the next book he wrote, The Lair of the White Worm, is specifically about syphilis. The white worm is a treponoma pallidia. That's the Latin word for syphilis. So it's the pale worm, the white worm. Right. That's what it's about. So, uh, and then <laughs> a new biography of Bram Stoker comes out just as I'm finishing the book. No, actually, the book was already done, I think, or maybe just finishing up. And anyway, the guy was on and on and on, blah, 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 blah. And then the last page, he says, oh, by the way, I just found out that Bram Stoker had syphilis. But that doesn't change it. No, of course, it changes everything because that's what uh, Dracula is about. It's about the man, Jonathan Harker. Okay, he goes to this weird place in Eastern Europe, and he's in the castle in Transylvania. And uh, the three weird sisters show up in his room at night, and we don't know exactly what happened. But then he gets a fever. And he's in the hospital in Budapest, and that's where Minna comes to visit him. And he, this is the famous moment in uh, Dracula. He's got his diary. He says, here is my diary. Do not read it. This is a classic ambivalence that you get with horror. Here is my diary. Do not read it. In other words, I'm trying to tell you something that's so horrible that I can only tell you in veiled ways. And the veiled way is basically well, something happened to me after I had that night with those three women. And I can't talk about it. Right. And the real horror here is what often happened in the 19th century was you could have a completely innocent victim of syphilis, namely the wife of the man who visited whores, right. and picked up the disease and it infected his wife. There's all kinds of stories about that kind of tragedy. And that's what Stoker is talking about. So basically, suddenly uh, the women start uh, uh, manifesting this strange behavior. And so the Dr Dracula becomes. The vampire becomes a, a symbol of sexual decadence, sexual problems, uh, the slavery of lust, and also the disease of syphilis, which was incurable at that point. Uh, the, the main manifestation of this 
decadence was Weimar Germany. And that's yes. where the first Dracula film got made. Okay. Nos, Nosferatu. And at this point, Germany produced more films in Hollywood. Wow. So it was like the center of the film, film world. And Dracula as a film got, got his start in Germany. And I'm saying the best way to understand that is by reading Hitler's Mein Kampf. Yes. Which I quote uh, extensively in this, in this uh, section of the book, because Hitler is obsessed with blood. Well, just like Dracula, he's obsessed with blood too, except it's bad blood is what Hitler is talking about. And what bad blood means is syphilis. And the German people feel that they are being assaulted by these forces. Now, Hitler associates this bad blood, the corruption of the German people with the Jews. And, uh, you know, Weimar was uh, uh, basically run by Jews. All of those decadent cabarets, all of that type of stuff. They were Jews were in charge of the culture at that point. And also, uh, the main uh, corrupter of sexual morals was Magnus Hirschfeld, another Jew who ran uh, the Institut für Sexualforschung in Berlin, which uh, Christopher Issue discovered was uh, basically a homosexual bordello masquerading as a scientific institute. This is what led to that revolution. Not so much the Russian Revolution in, in Russia as its sequel, the sequelae in the Soviet Republic of Bavaria and the Soviet Republic of Berlin, both of whom which were created by Russian Jews, by Bolsheviks, in the aftermath of Germany's defeat in World War I. And that made a big impression on the German people. And that's what eventually allowed the, the unjust Versailles Treaty, the decadence all led to Hitler's rise to power in 1933. I'm telling, I'm telling you guys, it, it was like such a fun book, and you know, ha, you know, more a little over half, you know, then you read Hitler's involved in this whole thesis as well, and it's 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 very very fun. Now, real quick, going back to Dracula, when you looked around and you were studying for this book, what's the general take on Dracula? You, like, how how do people unpack that book if not syphilis? That's a good question. And I, I'm drawing a blank here because I don't remember anything of significance. Right. I, I mean, if, you, if you're not talking about syphilis, you're not in the game. <laughs> it's that simple. And now it, it's gone on to mean other things. Like, uh, remember the uh, Anne Rice book with the two heartthrobs, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, uh, Interview with a Vampire? Okay, yes, yes. That's, that's about homosexuality. So uh, vampirism is associated with homosexuality at that point. That's a later development. Nobody's talked. Syphilis is not a big issue ever since penicillin. But there is, a, it's, it's obviously, there's an analogy here with uh, homosexuality. It's like, you know, they're engaged in sucking, right? Right. And they're, they're trying to draw off the life force. This is what the, uh, homosexuals have this deficit. It's called father deprivation. That's the cause of homosexuality. And they reach a certain point where they, they feel inadequate and they look to other men to find that, that the affirmation that they didn't get from their fathers. Well, the problem is when you're young, there are older men who have been through the cycle before you and they understand it perfectly. And they understand that there are young men out there looking for that type of affirmation and they sexualize it by seducing them. And as a result, you develop a very bad habit. Uh, which is basically this compulsive sexuality that is characteristic of uh, homosexuality. So this constant sucking and then trying to draw off the life force that you don't feel that you have by engaging in this or oral sex. 
Yeah, it's intriguing to me because similarly to to Del Toro with Frankenstein, the the majority of takes that I would find about Frankenstein are is it sort of a a reductio of exclusion of the other, which I've heard about Grendel as well. By the way, when you you brought up the the Grendel where Grendel's made the the hero, I've seen people do yeah. that with Frankenstein as well. And so I yeah, Dracula just seems a, a fascinating one. I'm not really sure. You know, well, that, that's precisely what Del Toro did. So what what intervened in the meantime is basically Gramsci, uh, Antonio Gramsci, and Michel Foucault, right? Which gave philosophical uh, justification for making the outsider the center of your culture. In right. other words, a, a rejection of the normal social order and promoting the outsider, which by by which home, uh, uh, Michel Foucault meant uh, the homosexual, uh, the insane sexual deviance of any sort, those type of things. They, those people are now valorized as the truly human people. Well, that's the culture we live in right now. It's been uh, race got injected into it, you know, so now it's Black Lives Matter and, and uh, these groups who are ipso facto right because they are oppressed. It's the world turned upside down. This is what Del Toro capitulates to in the shape of water. He's basically endorsing that, that, that type of culture. No rosary beads in the shape of water. Right. That's not a coincidence. Right. So, and maybe we can, as we get into more the the modern slashers, you have a principle in there in, in the book that, that I remember in uh, <laughs> italicized that the rule of horror is you screw, you die. Can you tell us about that? That's the rule of the slasher movie. Right. So, so what, we're now fast forwarding to the last revolution I deal with in the book, which is the revolution of the 1960s, sexual revolution of the 1960s. And the, the crucial year there is 1978-79. And that's crucial because people have spent now a decade living the life that Shelley and Godwin valorized, okay? And it turns out that it's not the way they thought it was going to be. Woodstock was in 1969, and it was all peace and love. And that lasted about six months until Altamont. And then Somebody got killed at the Peace and Love rally by Hell's Angels, who stabbed him to death. Wow. So it didn't turn out that way. Why didn't it turn out that way? Well, nobody knows. As a matter of fact, they can hardly say that it didn't turn out that way. So if you ask somebody in 1978, do you believe in sexual freedom? Well, who's, yeah, of course I do. Well, what was your experience of sexual freedom? Well, I, it, uh, I got a disease. And uh, it broke my heart, and my wife, my girlfriend had an abortion, but otherwise it was great. Well, wait a minute, you know, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play? You know, <laughs> uh, so at some point, someone had to deal with reality, and that's precisely what happened in 78 with Halloween, right? The right. Jamie Lee Curtis movie. Right. So this is, this is where you talk about you screw, you die. This is where this comes in, because this is the first slasher movie. So, the, you know, the girls invite their boyfriends over, they're babysitting, and as soon as any young lady removes any article of clothing, someone's going to jump out of the closet and stab her to death. That's pretty <laughs> much the slasher movie, which are very moral. So, right, they're very right, moral movies right. because evil is punished and good is rewarded, too. Jamie Lee is the only girl who doesn't screw, and she, she's the one who survives. So if I, if I were doing a sex ed course, I would show nothing but slasher movies. And that would scare the hell out of the kids and, and put them on the way straight and narrow. But the, the, the follow-up that was more sophisticated, and that was Alien. And that came out in 1979. And Alien, as I've said before, is the sequel to Deep Throat, which was the pornographic 
success to scandal of 1973, which is about oral sex. Okay. By 1979, it's clear oral sex isn't fun anymore. It's going to kill you. And right. that's exactly what it does. So it's hard to see. You have to uh, look at the, the visuals that uh, Hans Rudi Giger made. He was the man who created the monster, the kind of morbid Swiss guy. Uh, who has died since that time. I interviewed him in person. Yes, I had on here. I wanted you to tell about that that interview. If yeah. Well, Rudy, Hans Rudy Giger came up with the imagery, but basically what happens is you're in a spaceship, you're in outer space, they land on a planet, there's a spaceship that's crashed, and uh, the guy, John Hurt, walks into the spaceship, and it looks a lot like a woman with her legs spread. I hate to say that, but that's what it looks like. And once he's in there, he's kind of poking around, and he finds something, and suddenly this thing attaches to his face. And that's all we see. And then it falls off and then he goes back and everything seems to be fine. And then he's got the stomach pains uh, uh, during a meal. And suddenly you have the great scene where the monster explodes out of his stomach. Now, this is an allegory of what sex has become since Deep Throat. Right. Sex will kill you. What that monster did, he stuck his penis down John Hurt's throat and impregnated him in this perverse parody of uh, human sexuality. And what you're seeing now is sex is really bad. <laughs> I mean, it, it's going to kill you. It'll kill you. It's dangerous. It's ugly. It's horrible. That's the message. That's the message. So we, I'll show that in my sex ed course as well. <laughs> now, G so Giger came up with the alien monster, basically the shape and the look and everything else. What was it that you wanted to talk to him about? I asked him, did you ever procure an abortion? I said, uh, I mean, I led up to it. I, <laughs> not the first thing I said uh, when yeah, I, got, sure. I got him on the phone, got him on the phone. I think he was shocked that uh, an American could speak German. He had never experienced something like that before. Okay. So I'm talking to him. It wasn't Schweizerdeutsch, but it was, it was German. And I said, look, I've, I've watched, I'm looking through all your books like Necronomicon and things like that. There are all these dead babies there. Did you ever procure an abortion? And he said, no, I never did. And I said, well, your girlfriend committed suicide, Lee Tobler. Why did she commit suicide? Well, I don't know. But he says, but we did, uh, we did agree that we never wanted to have children. So, what he, so first of all, what I think is that Lee did get pregnant and she killed herself after the abortion. But he wouldn't know that. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know any more about it than I do. Okay. But the other thing you could uh, assume is what the church fathers would. And they would say that contraception is like murder. Church fathers always said that, made that connection. So we've got, we, we are so appalled by abortion that we think that contraception is no big deal, but it's a very big deal. And I think the Giger is proof of it. Right. If, it feels like a tilt-a-whirl with the, the subject of horror, where there's a lot of self-deception happening. So even as you bring up the slasher films... Those came out of Hollywood, which is a wildly sexually compromised place. Uh, right. Frankenstein came out of a wildly sexually compromised place. And they seem to be these heavily Puritan moralistic tales. You know, you would think that like some small Baptist church in Alabama came up with these right. movies, but it's not. Hollywood produced them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not sure if you've ever read a, man, a French guy by the name of Fr uh, René Girard. He wrote on uh, Mimetic Desire, and he wrote a, uh, a, a book on Shakespeare, and in it, he talks about envy being 
this particularly special sin where no one wants to bring it up. You know, we, we hear a lot often like, you know, make sure you humble yourself or don't get too prideful. Like that would be a common thing you could say in, in a social setting. If you told me that, you said, uh, you know, Jake, this radio show is pretty great, but don't get too heady about it. And I, and I returned fire and said, well, I appreciate that, Mr. Jones, but don't, don't get too envious of me. That would really come off. That would come off very strange and very weird. And that would almost seem like I came with like a huge knock at you. So basically just saying envy is this thing that we don't ever want to talk about, don't ever want to touch. We're super self-deceptive about it. Do you think horror plays a similar genre there? Like a a thing that we are just so self-deceived about? Well, I think it's about lust. Okay. Okay. I think that uh, that's the other deadly sin. Right. Uh, and uh, obviously, people talk about it all the time in a certain way, but they don't talk about it realistically and that there are consequences. What, what, is, what is the consequence? Why are they called deadly saints? Because I have that quote from St. James uh, the, uh, right. in the beginning of the book. That's right. Sin, it. when it gives birth, when it reaches its full uh, expansion, gives birth to death. So your desire, disorder, desires lead to sin and sin leads to death. And nobody wants to talk about that. Abortion is the obvious example. All those people, babies had to die because of lust, you know, because of sin. Nobody wants to talk about it. What I'm saying here is that horror enables a conversation that is less painful than the direct moral confrontation. Yeah, it, it seems to me that you get, folks get the scapegoat feeling of like, okay, my sins are now gone. I can watch this slasher film. I too have also done the premarital sex sin i can watch the slasher film uh, my conscience is somewhat fine now leaving the theater and i can go about my day does that does that sound about right i mean what it, it'd be one thing if we just never talked about it but it, they're making full-blown movies on it right aristotle called it catharsis there we go it's a feeling uh, he was uh, i think his father was a medical doctor but um it's a medical term Right. And when you when you see something really horrible happen, like Oedipus gouging out his eyes, it has a, a, a you're filled with pity and fear. And once the, you get those feelings of pity and fear, there's a purgation, which you call catharsis, and you feel better having seen something really bad because you're better off than that. I mean, that's one way of viewing it. You know, like I'm glad uh, that didn't happen to me, but it, it, it's a horrible thing, and I feel better because someone articulated. That horrible thing. That's what drove people to the theaters. That's why they kept going back again and again until the genre reached just the position of inanity it did under Wes Craven in the Scream series. So in terms of uh, the, because the other side of this is literary criticism, film criticism. What is the state of uh, horror criticism currently? Are you encouraged? Oh, what is the state of anything? <laughs> the, the, uh, the Academy is a total disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it's been that way for 30 years now. Right. The big battle over academe took place in the 19, uh, 1990. Uh, I had a front row seat because I had Stanley Fish, the Jewish literary critic, as one of my teachers in graduate school. And I knew he was a revolutionary. This is long before I wrote the Jewish revolutionary spirit, because he was going to overthrow all forms of decent literary criticism and impose his own Talmudic understanding of literary criticism, which he did. And nobody knows who he is anymore. But the fact of the matter is, 
the academe was taken over by these revolutionaries. Foucault was much more important than Stanley Fish ever was, uh, or Jacques Derrida. He was a big name in literary criticism at that point. Uh, but Foucault is much more important. And Gramsci, now with uh, Pete Buttigieg, uh, has become important too. Oh, right, right. Pete's father, Joe Buttigieg, was the guy who brought, edited the notebooks, prison notebooks of Antonio Gramsci and spent his life subverting Notre Dame University and was rewarded well with it. He, he wrote one crappy book, which was basically his doctoral dissertation on James Joyce, which is full of all the literary cliches that he would rail against as a postmodernist. And he got an endowed chair. That's for right. what? For doing nothing other than scheming. He, he got an A. If, if you were in my class, if I were teaching a class on political scheming in academe, Professor Buttigieg would have gotten an A. And now we're stuck with his son. Well, Washington is now. This is a man who learned uh, he's a homosexual, which raises lots of interesting questions, considering what I just said. Like, uh, tell us, who was the first guy you had sex with, Pete? Was it one of the professors at Notre Dame? I suspect it was. But we don't want to talk about that. But now uh, we are stuck with this guy because homosexuals are superior. This is exactly the type of uh, inversion that Guillermo del Toro is celebrating in that movie, The Shape of Water. Right. That valorization of, the, of deviance. So would you see then a culture that, that celebrates horror, goes, you know, spends a lot of money on horror as a, as a predominantly guilty culture, a hyper guilty yes, culture? Absolutely. Absolutely. Guilt drove horror movies. There's no question about it in my mind. Guilt over the sexual revolution. And everybody was relieved when they went to see Alien because, God damn it, sex can kill you. I'm glad someone finally said it. It's dangerous. Why didn't someone tell me this before? And you can say it in a way that is cryptic and does not threaten your status as an enlightened individual who still believes in the sexual revolution. I really appreciate your time. And, and I wanted to say one thing as we finish is, uh, as I read your book, I went and picked up a biography Mary Shelley. I think it was Miranda Seymour's. And just, I, I was just curious to see how reading your book, and then I wanted to see somebody, she was very impressed with Mary Shelley. And not that she didn't do impressive things, but I, I knew she would, I got the vibe, she would hate your thesis. And there was this one little section and I thought, done, she's a goner. And she, she basically unpacked Frankenstein as a essentially a, a, the other complex and, and a thing about race and, and the rest. But then she had this one little part, and I thought I would see what you thought about it. She said, in the summer of 1819, she could think nothing but of her loss. She had been a mother three times, each time the child had been snatched from her. What sin, she wondered, could have merited such relentless punishment? The old-fashioned concept of divine retribution was not one Mary learned from Godwin or Shelley. She began, nevertheless, to wonder if Harriet Shelley's death lay at her door, and if this was the penalty that was exacted, the thought would linger and haunt her. That's right. You're absolutely right. And why did it haunt her? Because she couldn't confess her sin. Right. She couldn't say, I did something wrong. I'm sorry. I sinned. Couldn't do it. And that's why. So if you don't do that, you're going to be haunted. That's the message of the paragraph you just read. Absolutely. Michael Jones, thank you so much for taking the time again. This was awesome, and I hope to have you back on soon. Thank you. My pleasure. Cheers. Cheers.